Hello, and welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's show, we find out how the 12 goals of Exeter are tackling air pollution. How do you provide something that, that is reflective of the perspectives of the people that deal with these kind of problems every day? So you know, we have done a lot of listening, we've done a lot of engagement, you know, whatever challenges that people are facing. We talk circular buildings with British reuse marketplace Globe Chain. We want to do is we have a strap line of like commercial with a conscience. So I believe like the next generation of businesses are all going to have this like ingrained in their ethos. And we explore how the beer we drink is improving water stewardship for World Water Day. Because water Day is a really important opportunity to focus and celebrate uh, water and the importance of water for the company and the places where we operate. Yes, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. You're listening to ED's content editor, Matt Mace, broadcasting from our East Grinstead offices. Uh, Last week, I was rather alone on the podcast, but I'm pleased to say I am joined today by a few members of the uh, ED team who I've managed to pry away from what is um, an extraordinarily busy period for us right now. Uh, ED reporter Sarah George, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm holding up, I'm holding up. Um, come back to me once I've been to some of the events I have coming up over the next week, and I'm sure my answer might have changed. Well, um, yeah, extremely busy time for us all, not just with uh, events, but projects, um, reports, etc. Though you were actually on annual leave, I believe, for the last episode um, that you missed. So that was, what, two weeks ago now? Would it get up to anything yes. nice? I'm afraid that I was in sunny Rome, and while today we'll be talking about ultra-modern, tiny... Um, dwellings. I was looking around things like the Colosseum and the Vatican, which are just sort of the the antithesis of that, really. Still, a nice way to a nice way to spend your time. You you're glad you're back in East Grinstead, though, surely. It took me a few days to get <laughs> back into it. I mean, it's it's warm enough out there to be drinking wine on your balcony and eating pasta in the sunshine, and it's just a little bit different over here. Good stuff. Um, now, I'm sure all of you listening at home have realised the fact that I'm presenting this episode means that Luke Nichols is not around. Um, he's actually busy putting the finishing touches to our ED Live event, um, although I haven't actually seen him today, so maybe he's had one too many shandies um, at our 30 under 30 launch event, which was last night up in central London, which was an um, extremely fun night, even if we are all a little bit tired today. Ooh. Um, but whereas Luke is absent, we, we do actually have an historic moment on, <laughs> on the podcast. I don't quite have a drum roll, um, but we are going to introduce a new team member. Our former insider to George Ogilby, is, he's a distant memory in the office. Um, <laughs> chance of who, every time his name is mentioned, um, apart from the shrine that we do have set up from in the corner. But our new insight editor, James Everson, uh, joining us for the first time in the studio. Um, James, this is your first real taste of the ED team rapport. Um, as we call it. What, what do you think so far? It's great, yeah. I'm uh, really enjoying it. I've listened to a few of the podcasts already and, um, yeah, looking forward to getting stuck in. Great. Um, the keen-eared among our listeners will probably recognise that this isn't your technical debut on the podcast. You no. did you did um, actually source an interview for the last one. I believe that was with Emma Pinchbeck from Renewables yes. UK. Yes, um, but since we've got you in front of the mic now, why don't you give yourself a, a proper introduction um, for audience, you know, who you are, where you came from, your national insurance number, just the usual <laughs> stuff really. Yes, hello, I'm uh, James Everson, I'm the new Inside Editor, and um, I've been a business journalist for, crikey, it's going to be a bit scary, it's probably about 14, 15 years now. Um, I've most recently been covering the pub sector, which was very exciting, um, but I've also covered construction, property, and uh, health and safety, amongst others. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into the brief on, uh, on ED. And, um, and yeah, lots, as, as Matt says, coming up. I've got quite a few reports that are in progress, our latest version of the Mission Possible report, and a few more uh, in the pipeline as well. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, you really uh, hit the ground running, not just with the reports, but you helped out with the uh, a few podcast interviews. You've got a few webinars lined up as well. So I'm sure yeah. all the, the ED audience will be seeing a lot more of, uh, of James in, in months to come. Um, and I know I mentioned that George was a distant memory, but he's, he's actually making an appearance on, on this episode. Uh, back in deepest, darkest uh, December, George took an overnight stay in something called a Z-Pod, um, which is essentially a zero-carbon modular housing solution 
that um, is beginning to make inroads in the UK. During that stay, uh, George conducted an interview with Zed Factory's founder and architect Bill Dunster to discuss a bit more about the solution and a bit more about that organisation's plans. Um, however, that interview got a bit lost in the Christmas shuffle. We were kind of winding <laughs> down um, in terms of outputs, etc. We, we obviously had a bit of time off over Christmas. Um, and then when he came back... Um, it kind of got lost in George's um, impending departure where stuff like reports um, mm. and whatnot had to take priority. So yeah, George's exit meant that that also got a lot in the shop. I think George actually needs his own kind of Brexit moniker, something like Jexit or I can't really <laughs> use his surname for it, but we'll, we'll refer to it as Jexit from, from now on, I think. Um, but anyway, during a bit of podcast spring cleaning last week, uh, we actually managed to find that interview file at long last, um, and we're going to play you a small excerpt from that trip now. Obviously, a lot of the stuff covered was a bit more topical around certain events that happened in that time, so don't quite work. But following that, we will then going to be joined by a live um, studio call-in by Rehan Kodapakus, Operations Director at ZPod, and he's going to then join us on the phone to provide an update to the initiative um, and we'll also be getting his thoughts on a few kind of notable announcements in the built environment sector over the last couple of weeks. Um, so enjoy um, another George interview, this time with a Z Factory's founder, Bill Dunster, and then join us for the live phone-in with Rehan. So I'm joined by the man himself now, Bill. Um, we're here with podcast episode uh, in the Z Pod, a pod in a pod, if you will. Um, it's probably one of the more surreal podcast segments that we've had. Um, Bill, maybe you could tell us why we're in a, a, a prefab home in a car park outside a college in uh, Dunstable. Well, the Z-Pods are one of the possible solutions to the UK housing crisis because the biggest problem is getting hold of land to build affordable homes. Um, it's very difficult to buy it on the open market because you're in the competition with the big volume house builders. Um, so what we've done is we said, look, how do you decouple the cost of providing an affordable home from the cost of buying land? Mm. And one of the things that the UK is absolutely has an abundant supply of is um, tarmac, mm. and in particular parking bays. So I thought, I was looking at um, aerial photographs on Google Earth and, and, and sort of understanding where, you know, looking for plots... Actually, it was staring me in the face. It's all the uh, public car parks. Many of those are owned by local authorities, local councils, or, or, or public bodies. They're the car parks for leisure centres. Some of them are owned by supermarkets. Public parking is a massive resource. Now, if we use the air rights above the parking bays, and we put very super-efficient new homes above them which hardly used any energy at all because they were so well insulated they had triple glazing they had uh, solar panels integrated into the roofs south facing roof surfaces um, they had they they had heat recovery ventilation they had all the the, the more cons then they would hardly need any energy which would make them virtually uh, net zero bills, no net annual energy bills, but more importantly they can use the resources or the, or the, or the meagre resources that may be available in a car park like street lighting circuits, very very low low power requirements. So you have this virtuous circle, you have a, a home which is very affordable, it's going to be uh, net zero carbon, it may have no net annual energy bills, it's not had to pay for the land that it sits on and it's going to be nearer to where people want to live, probably nearer to where they work and certainly nearer to local amenities rather than uh, shipping um, affordable homes out into the uh, industrial hinterland where property values are low enough for uh, housing associations to buy land. Mm. Mm. So the idea then was to see, well, that's not going to be appropriate to everybody. It's probably uh, going to be a, a, a targeted at 
key workers, the kind of people that keep society running, um, teachers, police, firemen, uh, health professionals. Um, it then may be possible to uh, meet some of the demand, um, to meet some of the requirements for housing these people uh, on the very premises that they uh, are already travelling to every day, and that reduces commuting. So they could be built off-site in, in, in pop-up factories, and we're working uh, in a, a factory at the moment in Peterborough, which was the nearest, cheapest uh, shed zone outside London. Um, where we were, where we uh, converted a uh, Marks and Spencer's distribution warehouse into a pop-up factory in a space of about a fortnight, and then we built one of these and built the home that you're sitting in now mm. in two weeks. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I, for listeners uh, who don't know, I, I did stay here last night, and I must say it was it's one of the best nights sleep I've had in a long time. It's a cold December evening, but. The insulation here was fantastic. Um, this is something I would definitely do as, as a first-time buyer. You know, this is something that would uh, definitely appeal to me. You know, affordable, low carbon. Because obviously, people of, of my age are probably more interested in the whole uh, sustainability aspect of things. So it's it's, it's great. And I suppose the point that you touched upon there with the key workers. You, if you if you're an NHS worker and you and you can work two minutes from where you live, that's I suppose that's brilliant. The retention rates would probably increase dramatically. Well, they're having trouble recruiting. Mm. Mm. Um, so, really, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, we we just when just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were sitting in here, um, having a meeting, and a load of nurses who work in the hospital immediately across the road were parking their cars using the college car park. Mm. They came across and said, can we have a look in? Um, and, and they all put their names down for one. So, you know, we got a proposal to put a few more of these uh, in, a, in, a, in a straight line on this car park. We've already got um, key workers working adjacent wanting to move in. Mm. So it's what's interesting about this is that we could... We could put uh, a quarter of a million of these homes in to the UK without losing any of the land already allocated to conventional housing. Mm. And, and probably that's an underestimate. If you did all the supermarket car parks as well, well then, 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 then you, you, you'd be well up. Mm. So thank you very much um, for that, George. Uh, uh, one last gift for, from, from him. Um, and we should now be joined on the phone um, by Rian um, uh, Kadabakus, the uh, Operations Director at Zpod. Um, Rian, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you, pleasure to be speaking to you. Um, so we, we've heard from, from Bill Dunster there, um, that was a few months ago, just uh, about, about Zpod and around its purpose and what, what they hope to achieve. But in that time frame, it'd be good just to have a, a bit of a, a catch up and an update on, on what projects and, and um, announcements that have happened since that you're quite excited about? Yeah, so we've been working hard um, trying to get as many projects into planning as we possibly can. So we spent the first part of um, the, the project development focusing on getting our build off site insurances and mortgage viability in place. Now we've, we've got that in place, we, it enabled us to put a lot of more projects into planning. We originally aimed in 2018 to by the end of 2018, to get 65 to get 60 units into planning. Now we've got 65 units in various stages of pre-application to actual planning, uh, in a number of different sites from Lincolnshire down through into Essex. Um, we've been doing a lot of exciting things with the housing associations and uh, the Bristol Housing Festival. And um, we've also got some things that we're doing down towards in in, in London, which is also into pre-app as well. So it's exciting times, and we've we, we think that we spent the time. It was worthwhile develop, spending the time with the BOPAS and with um, the uh, warranty providers to make sure that we had a, a, a guaranteed long-term product that was high quality, very, very sustainable in terms of the fact that there's no fossil fuels going into the, the, the um, dwellings, there's no uh, gas, it's, they're all electric, they've got their solar electric PV panels on the roof to generate more energy, and that now that it's all, you know, signed off as, um, yeah, with the minimum 60-year design life um, from BOPAS, so that the actual design life will be 100 years plus. 
we can now have a, a mortgageable modular product that we can build above car parks in city centres. And then it's Sarah here, Edie's reporter. I just wanted to come in and touch on, you mentioned a lot there about sort of clean electricity and clean heating for these houses. And obviously that was some of the key outlinings of the spring statement. So what did you guys as ZPod um, make of that statement as a company that has sort of been leading on that agenda before it will be enshrined into policy? It's, it's good. Um, we're glad that he's decided to sort of put a date to when fossil fuel input in gas boilers needs to come to an end. We, yeah, originally this we were looking at, uh, we've always been working towards, um, and sort of in my training and my background, the COPE for Sustainable Homes to develop these types of homes from 2016. So it's interesting that they've, they've got this coming in now and that they finally listen to sort of more on the environmental side to say that, right, we need to embrace new technologies to bring in low carbon heating, but it needs to be holistically done. You know, you can't just suddenly say that in, in, in 2025, everything's going to be fine and ready. We have established heating technologies that will work and we've been using for a long time, which enables us to create our ultra low carbon and up to zero carbon developments. But the reason that they work is because we've got the right insulation levels, we've got the right levels of air tightness, that we have such low space heating demands and hot water demands that are, are essentially the heat pumps and the, the fossil fuel free energy is fossil fuel free because we have battery systems and um, PV panels that enable us to offset as much of the energy that we import as well as we export. So it's not just the case of just, just doing the bare minimum of not installing gas boilers. You need to think of it very, very holistically. I think key to being able to do that is to instill in the training colleges and the technical colleges at the moment to, that, that this is what's going to be happening, that you need to be on the, uh, versed in installing different types of heating technologies in the future so that when the students leave those technical colleges, they're coming out looking, wanting to install heat pumps, air source heat pumps, micro air source heat pumps, different types of sustainable heating technologies, rather than being just trained in the traditional heating installations and then it being a shock in 2025. So training is very, very key, along with a holistic output. And it all feeds quite nicely into developing high quality um, sustainable low energy homes and it, where we come from because we've been doing things modularly when we build in a factory it's easier to ensure those um, quality standards are met and it's also easy to ensure that we're doing those in a quick way as quick as way as possible so I think it's, it's, it's good for us and it ties in but you know we, we know that we know the difficulties that, that are involved in it and we're already embracing those now so we feel that we, we, we are ready um, we're, I personally think that we need to be doing more in, in terms of what we do with, it, with, with the training so that everybody else that is moving into the industry will also be ready. Uh, so it's James here, Insight Editor. So you've kind of touched it on there. Looking forward to the future, what do you see as the next stage for the ZPod mission? So what I, I, I think uh, I've sort of touched on it a little bit there is now we're getting projects replanning, now we're starting to see stuff um, hopefully being built and going through. Now it's a case of making sure that the right types of training are already yeah, are existing in the industry because we need to use, when we build in a factory, we want multi-skilled technicians because when we're building in a factory, we want the carpenter to be able to turn his hands to many different things because every time a building is not moving through the production line, then it's costing us money to have it in the factory. So we want multi-skilled people and we need the industry sort of to, to embrace that. We'll see more emphasis on reducing the energy consumption in buildings that to, to hit the same levels that we are doing in terms of um, uh, the regulations coming through. Because by doing that, then you're ensuring that it's, it's just by switching over to electric heating systems that you've reduced the amount of heating required. So it's not it's still cost effective in terms of running costs um, because obviously electricity is more expensive than gas. You have efficiency improvements by switching over to heat pumps. We should also be looking at generating renewable energy to power those heat pumps as well as much as possible. So we think there's a bit more work to be done in the holistic understanding and we're, we're more than key to help 
um, rollout, and we've been looking at different ways of sort of CPD sessions to make sure that the housing association that um, to, just just to touch a bit more on the, on, on the, the spring statement, you know, he also they also announced this additional three billion borrowing for um, housing associations. But we need to be educating those housing associations on the benefits of modular, on the benefits of how we reduce energy. Um, consumption in the buildings, how we improve cost-effectively the environmental standards and the reduced energy standards in there so that the housing associations are ready, that they start demanding it, um, low-energy homes, modular homes, homes built in city centres where um, they're required for the key workers and the, the types of people that are on social rents and affordable rents, so they're in the right place. Uh, and then we can start looking at doing it all holistically. So we, we, we look at the training, we look at the housing associations, we look at the local authorities, we look at the increasing the rollout of modular because it enables us to ensure those quality standards and build those quality standards into uh, these affordable homes that are required. And then we sort of, for want of a better term, square the circle. Great stuff, Ryan. Sounds like there's a, a lot to be getting on with on um, on that education and comms piece, certainly. So we won't um, we won't keep you uh, for too much longer. But um, again, thank you for for taking the time out of your busy day to, to have a chat with us. I'm sure we'll be in touch again in the future. Brilliant. Thanks very much. So thank you very much to both Bill and Rehan for speaking to us. Um, and join us for part two, where we'll be exploring the UK's reuse marketplace. Hello and welcome back to the Easy Podcast. Uh, James and Sarah, a question for you both now. Uh, when was the last time you, you bought something that was secondhand and, and what was it? Sarah, I'm looking at you to go first with this one. I, I thought you might be because Matt knows all about my New Year's <laughs> resolution, which was to not buy any new clothes unless they were from independent or ethical retailers. So the last thing I bought secondhand was probably the shirt that I'm wearing today. Needed a, a very business-like um, shirt for an event. Um, pick this one up on eBay. Mm, very nice. James, yourself? Mm. Um, so I often buy quite a lot of second-hand furniture, um, mainly wooden, uh, just because it's good. And even though it can be quite pricey, it's often you can get really good items and uh, and I feel like it's got, you know, extending the life cycle. So that's kind of often buy those. So I think I bought the last thing I bought was a TV stand. Basically, the reason I asked is it seems that there's a little bit of a stigma around purchasing used items, certainly in some sectors, um, although it is starting to make inroads fashion, as you mentioned, Sarah, people are starting to come around to the idea of, of second hand. Um, but for businesses, giving a second life to products is, is essentially part of that sustainability journey, uh, whether that's through recycling or ultimately reuse. Um, and Globechain is an award-winning British reuse marketplace that connects corporates to charities and people in order to redistribute unwanted items such as furniture. Items are listed on Globechain and are given for free. And that organisation, they then create a social impact data for the companies um, that basically state what their items now have been used for. And they can use that in their CSR reporting um, as well. It's been described as uh, a free eBay, but with social impact data attached, which is nice. Um, so the company was recently listed on the Forbes One to Watch list for exciting startups in 2019. Um, which kind of piqued my interest when they got in touch. Um, and so a couple of weeks ago, I went to London to speak to the company's founder and chief executive, May Al-Karouni, to learn more about the demand for reuse across different countries. Um, so we are now heading over to a small kind of building in London called the Conduit Club, I believe. It's got like a, a kind of cafe bar up on the top floor, which is where we... Um, where we do this, so you might hear a few coffee grinders going off in the background. Um, but we had a nice, nice chat about the business model and about her plans for it. So here is that chat with May Al Karuni in full. So May, thank you very much um, for hosting me today. This is um, obviously 
the big focus of, of your kind of organisation is, is reuse. I've got some facts in front of me that I'll, I'll kind of blitz through just to give our, our listeners a bit of an idea in case they haven't heard of, of Globechain. So um, as, as I mentioned, that kind of reuse marketplace has diverted more than 5.1 million kilos from landfill to date, saved charities more than £2 million and has helped over uh, 14,000 communities across the UK, the US, Africa. I have Ukraine and Libya down, but I think that might have been updated a little bit since then. I'm not quite sure. So that's some interesting marketplaces there um, we've seen a few of these kind of reuse marketplaces in the UK what, what was kind of unique about um, you've got quite a developed country there in the UK and then you've got kind of, uh, the US as well and then Africa, Libya, Ukraine seem obviously less developed in this area Why? what's the marketplace out there like? Yeah, um, that was really interesting actually because that came about through like demand for the product. So it wasn't initially kind of in my sphere of like strategic scaling, um, but it happened because um, of the types of products that the corporates were listing. So uh, initially we started off kind of with retail products, so fixtures and fittings and obsolete stock. And then we realized the construction industry and the built environment had a lot of things from lighting to flooring. And um, as we were building up our charity members and our small businesses, we realized that some really unusual items were been taken specifically in the NHS so the NHS have medical equipment and um, unfortunately they have to dispose of a lot of that so it's massive volumes it's a waste they get incinerated and it's really due to kind of old um, legals policy mm. health and safety and compliance so for example I can't give you my crutches because you're not trained on them so if you sprain a muscle you could sue me so it's that type of thing however um, places in Africa Libya Ukraine they all have hospitals in either war and conflict areas or it's like Ebola crisis and and um, there are charities that are based here with representatives that actually um, ship these items over because they either can't um, get it there, they can't afford it, or that there's no accessibility, especially in, in, in areas like Libya, for example. So, um, so it was a real surprise actually to see these charities take these items, which are actually quite expensive. So that's how it came about. It's really the demand of just the members organically registering and requesting stuff. We test, we test things. You know, we say to the NHS, just put anything on that you think someone might want, and. Uh, see who takes it and we were like, pleasantly surprised <laughs> and it might sound to our listeners a bit random that we are we're kind of um, interviewing the founder of a company that was set up just three years ago but um, obviously Globechain is, is kind of doing a lot of work around the reuse area you're, you're working with DEFRA and RAP part of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's kind of ongoing initiatives as well um, I think it was Forbes has kind of put you as one of the startups to watch for this year as, as well so what yeah. kind of what kind of sets you apart from from other startups in your opinion um, I would say other startups I think we're, we're moving into kind of a new industry a new economy as you know sick economy and sustainability and people have kind of just woken up to it um, it's become more mainstream um, what we want to do is we have a strap line of like commercial with a conscience so I believe like the next generation of businesses are all going to have this like ingrained in their ethos whether that's built in their foundations of starting businesses or in you know incorporating in it as you're seeing in larger com companies so for me it's about we're just business like with an impact you know and that that's how I see it and I think um, you know, it was really nice to be kind of um, in Forbes as growing, um, growing awareness in that sense, and um, I'm really proud of that. And I think finally, you know, these kind of social impact marketplaces, circular economy is becoming a bit more respected within kind of the tech market as well. And that's how I want us to be perceived as a serious player in the waste market, but on technology. Okay, and the technology aspect's really um, key, I think. It's digitalization can have such a transformative impact across business. So in terms of the, is that just the way that you use technology to um, redistribute these projects or is it a focus on technology products as well or a bit of both? Um, no, so the way I see it is like keep it simple as possible. So um, when I set Globechain up, you know, it was because a bank, I, I worked in a bank and they moved offices and I threw the products away and I just thought, why is no one digitalized waste? Um, and that kind of grew from that. So what I believe is like um, big companies can't change overnight like startups. So you have to do everything in, in steps. So by using technology in the simplest way possible, integrating into their system, helping them slowly grow and develop I think that's how we can help and enable these companies to do better in, in sustainability in any aspect and impact and yeah I do think technology works like for example we collect data on social impact so for me the focus in the future really is about improving our technology on data analytics to send back to the company to help them with their waste audits um, as well as their social impact
about sustainable development goals and so on. But I also see technology in the future, um, you know, with our members. So, you know, as, as the circuit economy and sustainability grows, our members become more sophisticated. So, you know, why not have waste, waste to energy partners um, using the system? Because we'll know what type of items and materials okay. come and go where. So. And so you must have been really pleased with the, um, the climate talks at Davos then, because you have all these kind of um, national leaders, all these kind of thought experts appear in it. From our point of view at ED, it seemed that circular economy um, was the kind of defining topic there. So many reports released, so many people were talking about it. Um, and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation actually released a report about how artificial intelligence and yeah. digitalization can, can transform the circular economy. So it must be an exciting time for you. Yeah, I think definitely there's been like a tipping point um, in the market. As I said, like, you know, circular economy and sustainability was very much for the, you know, the procurement, the teams internally in companies, and nobody really knew that difference. Um, but um, now I think, you know, um, we've got millenniums, we've got new generation of, you know, um, 20 to 30 year olds they're all pushing for different things so brands really have to take note about what's going on and their responsibility in their supply chain and the marketplace so I was really happy to see that and yeah I think technology can do good um, and in terms of the circular economy debate kind of not even nationally but globally right now it's it's pretty much being driven by plastics that's kind of or at least it's opened the avenue for people to start to discuss in the circular economy so if, if we use um, this kind of uh, the hotel bar we're in right now as, as an example you could talk to um, the everyday person on the street about plastic bottles and about the fact that kind of uh, bags, even clothes right now, are being uh, made used, using plastic bottles. It's part of the circular economy. How do you then get that reaction, that interest to say, oh, this, um, this store, this chair that we're sitting on, is also part of that circular economy and get the same kind of um, intrigued reaction out of it? It seems a bit harder. Um, it actually isn't. Um, it's just about raising awareness and behaviour change. Like, you know, that, that food was a fashion about a year ago, plus it's been a fashion for probably two years now, and it's becoming more and more, and rightly so. I think, you know, the next step is going to be like, okay, we've done plastic, so we're getting there. What else is there? And actually, what we're finding is speaking to these big companies that have all this waste, um, there's no solution for it. So it's not that they're not aware, they know they incinerate products from returns, they know they, they dispose of a lot of furniture. Because because it's not worth reselling. They know 10% of construction material is bought extra. They know these things. What the problem is, is they don't know about the solutions out there. So for us to come in and go, hey, we've got an idea, and this is what we do, within 24 hours this stuff's gone, not only do you save money, you get data, and you do good with it, it's actually a really easy sell. So um, I think it's it's really about talking about it and getting the name out there, Globe Chain and Reuse Marketplaces, and getting people familiar with um, a behaviour change really, oh, that's all it is. And the reason I think our listeners would be quite keen to hear from, from you on this May is because you, your, your background is, is a nice mix of all the kind of key areas of where sustainability probably needs to deliver. So um, I just by flicking through your LinkedIn, so I'm not some major kind of internet sleuth, this could be wrong, but um, <laughs> you, you, previous jobs include um, kind of an accountant at Alfa Romeo, you worked um, in investment and marketing um, at the Close Brothers Group, you've worked for a range of kind of FTSE companies ranging from insurance to investment banking, um, you've worked on kind of branding, website development, PR strategies. So essentially, um, from ED we recognise that the finance sector is just about starting to yeah. get on with the sustainability story, the reason why it's so important, and that companies are now, especially sustainability departments, are coming much more aligned to their to their marketing um, and communications companies. So having experience in, in those sectors as well, you know, what does, um, how, how do you take the concept of circular economy, which can be quite broad and confusing. How would you relay that to different areas? Yeah, I know that's exactly right. I think, um, yeah, I've been blessed with kind of this corporate training, you know, that some millenniums don't have these days because everybody wants to work in a startup. But um, I actually think it's great kind of foundations and grounds for understanding how corporates work, how they think, the language you have to use, and what makes them tick. You know, for example, most big FTSE companies, they basically, um, you know, they're all about financial and they have to talk to stakeholders. So it's about helping 
helping them put a business case together um, for their finance director to be happy, but ultimately it's their shareholders and stakeholders that want the profits. So how do you help a company explain that they're changing their business models and the reason why, and how are they going to make money out of it, hence the commercial elements. So we always focus on the commercial first because people know they need to do good and they know what's wrong and what's right. It's about finding a solution that fits into the red tape, if you like. And um, yeah, we're, we've actually, we actually work with Invesco Perpetulo, which is a very large asset management. Okay. And so we, um, we've done work for them in Houston, as well as London on their offices and reefers. But also what's interesting is we're working with them on ESG data. So this is the social impact data that we collect, but ESG data is very interesting for asset management, impact investing, and um, almost credit financing as well. So ESG data is used to determine share price, kind of unofficially, um, alongside P&L and balance sheets. So um, I believe they're looking at it more and more, and, and this is going to be pushed probably from the consumer side as well. And banks are very aware of it. You know, some of these banks, like we, we just secured another major bank, and um, they have a whole global ESG data team. Um, Bloomberg have an ESG data yeah, app. You know, so this is not something that hasn't been around. It's just people aren't aware, aware that this is how uh, companies are monitored. And we're definitely seeing more examples of companies being able to bridge that gap between the ESG um, and sustainability. Yeah. But um, you mentioned kind of um, consumers and, and the PR aspect as well. So um, in terms of developing perhaps a marketing strategy for, for the circular economy, again, how, how does that narrative, how does that conversation change when you're aiming at a different group, an audience? Yeah, so um, interestingly, in the past, when I first started, I never used the word circular economy because no one knew about it. Yeah, yeah. So we used to just look at what problems do you have around your waste and can we solve it with our network? And it was a really simple conversation like that. And I think what the site does and what technology does is it creates a language that corporates understand as well as charities, social enterprises and small businesses. Um, and I think that's the beauty and what gives us our USP and data because there aren't many marketplaces really that don't sell and give data back to their members. Normally the data is for advertising purposes, mm. but our data is used in many levels, quite high level, quite broad level. Um, you know, it's more transparent than waste companies when they're giving waste data. Um, and also social impact data really hasn't been looked at in this way before. So it's like, you know, your table or your fixture or your pane of glass. Actually, what impact does that have on somebody else, truly? Like, does it help with upskilling? Does it help with employment levels? You know, okay, you diverted X kilos from landfill. Everybody you know that's great but the feeling of understanding how it's helped probably generate a new life not just for the product but for a person is really powerful and I think we're coming back as a society to that kind of thinking definitely it's really interesting um, I always view that kind of social impact um, with in, in terms of like a business or a corporate involvement in a community I always view it as something that starts at the beginning of a supply chain yeah. um, in those kind of at least um, traditionally in those kind of um, rural developing countries but it's quite interesting to see that this uh, model actually benefits the community post consumed items in that sense it is it is a circular economy but also with the impact going through the value chain as well which is quite interesting and I just want to um, um, touch on, on you personally here because as I said when I looked through um, your profile um, and your and all your previous jobs it seemed like you moved around um, quite quickly stayed in a few jobs for a year or so moved on you've been um, it says 2015 but I think you were working on it before then if that's yeah, right kind of unofficially yeah because <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was working in the bank so basically moonlighting for a year <laughs> but that was it was more to do with um, designing the site yeah and getting it built and thinking of the ideas and actually um, working with a cup just making uh, it ready to Launch, yeah, yeah basically like you know does somebody want it like and if they do what do they want it for do you know so the, the site grew from the demand of actually the corporates asking for specific things and then year two is when I realized because we got Nando's then and we went with Topshop okay. and um, that was when I realized oh actually this is a big problem <laughs> and then Ellen MacArthur came out with her studies and as you know now it's like a business huge, case has been built yeah. case, there was no market cap yeah. when we first started so that was tough because it was kind of proving a new model marketplaces are always very hard anyway but we were doing a new economy and there was no data on reuse so when I was looking things up there was a little bit of the recycling data but I was like hang on why haven't we got reuse it's the simplest thing um, you know now there's a little bit more data but for me at the time I was like well we'll create it so really that's how the social impact data came out 
parts and really the system has been built based on what people want what I think they need if that makes sense and I think that's what makes it successful as well and the speed so people that are taking they don't take just all of it they take what they actually need so mm. you know a lot of sometimes when charities partner with big companies you know they feel obliged to take like the lot because it's a contract or it's a partnership and then they have to incinerate some of the products and swallow the cost of that that doesn't really happen with us because people are only taking what they require because it costs them it's free to take but they take they do their own logistics um, and they're quick okay and you moved around um, fairly frequently you stayed at a job for maybe a year or two yeah. a year is now kind of officially three years um, is it fair to say you kind of found your purpose at Globe Chain? Yeah um, that wasn't my intention originally it was um, you know when you work in a bank you kind of fall in it I didn't wake mm. up one day and go what do I want to do with my life I want to go banking <laughs> definitely wasn't the case it was like how can I pay my bills and um, you kind of get stuck in it and um, yeah Globe Chain obviously came about while I was working there and I, you know definitely there's more fulfillment and substance and I'll never go back to that you know so failure isn't an option <laughs> going forwards um, but I would say um, what's interesting is that, that I always wanted a business and, and and I didn't expect it to grow so big and so mm. quick that wasn't my intention what I wanted to prove really was you can be you can be a business for profit make money and do good um, and you know now you know it's happening with so many different companies as well so there's that satisfaction of like oh we're creating it and we're seeing it happen we're actually doing it rather than talking so for me the satisfaction is like seeing all these transactions take place some really unusual things mm. like we had roles yesterday of something I've no idea what they are <laughs> they're from rail tracks and there was a lot of it and um, it went this morning Terry in Africa and a medical student raising fees for his student fees in, in right. medical his third year medical school and they want the lot um, <laughs> No idea what it's for, but obviously it's worth some money. But the, the charity in Africa is using it to help with domestic violence and women, so they have incubators. Um, so it's really interesting. Like it's just fascinating to go. Like somebody somewhere wants something that you don't want. So it's not really waste. This brings me nice on to my um, my last question. I'm, I'm a bit worried that the the place is starting to fill up a little bit. The door keeps opening. There's some sort of really weird um, kind of uh, mechanical works going on outside. So um, this will be my last question, and it's just around um, the fact that we have talked about bridging the circle economy with the social impact and with your work in developing nations I um, I did a quick kind of scan across globe chain and, and looked at kind of blog posts and a few of them mentioned the sustainable development goals yeah. um, is this you know the fact that you partnered social impact with resources is this a great opportunity to take something that the public are now aware of and kind of start linking it to the sustainable goals is that your plan yeah, we're actually, the, one of the next phases on our site is uh, we've done some data crunching the data and seen what type of charities have taken type, what type of items for the companies and we've aligned them to the SDGs. So the next thing people will start seeing now is the SDG goals aligned to what they're giving away through the donation of the assets. Um, so I'm hoping that that's going to be quite interesting to see where they're hitting their targets, if they're hitting, if they're looking at those targets, but also where they're not hitting their targets as well. And what's been really interesting is that pretty much we've we hit every SDG oh, on okay. all the items I think the only one we've got to find is plastics in the ocean irony oh, right. <laughs> that's probably because we don't put any plastics on the site yeah and there's no charity that's taking plastics off the site at the moment because um, it's getting recycled but I'm sure that will come <laughs> May thank you so much for your time today um, it was it was a kind of very quick fire uh, run through yeah, Globe and, and your and yourself but um, very bad one I can I can see why um, you're, you're kind of one of the startups to watch for 2019 and uh, it sounds like much. you're ready to grow uh, 2020 so it'd be great to keep in touch uh, but yeah thank you so much for your time thank you so there you go I hope you enjoyed that um, as May mentioned Globe Chain has diverted uh, more than 5 million kilos from landfill to date and has saved charities more than 2 million pounds in procurement costs so um, and as well as helping in more than 14,000 communities across the UK, US, Africa, uh, Ukraine and Libya, which are quite random markets, but there you go. Um, so it's certainly one to watch out for in 2019. Anyway, that was it for part two, nice and brief in that sense. So join us for part three for more interviews, this time focusing on air quality and World Water Day. Yes, hello and welcome back. For our third and final section, we are going to uh, plough straight into the interviews for this as we still have two more high-profile ones to get through. Um, in this occasion, I believe that both James and Sarah, you've actually been on the phones this week to discuss two uh, very important topics. 
uh, Sarah, I keep to just keep picking on you to go first, but do you want to go first again? No, thanks for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so my interview was with Liz O'Driscoll, who directs programmes at Exeter City Futures, and it was about the city's new Everyone's Exeter campaign. So this is a campaign that aims to unite all key stakeholders around the area for a set of common sustainability goals that's both environmental and social economic as well. Um, but the specific focus on this is air pollution, which Ely readers will know has been rising up the agenda over the past year or so, certainly since I started. So originally planned to ask her a lot about the air quality picture, but it ended up a lot being about um, communications and empowering stakeholders as well. OK, we'll be a good time with our Engage uh, event coming up exactly very shortly. Mm -hmm. OK, well, let's, um, let's hear that interview with uh, Dr O'Driscoll in full. As the team have just mentioned, I'm on the phone here with Liz O'Driscoll, who manages and directs the programmes at Exeter City Futures, which is running the Exe Everyone's Exeter campaign. So this is a collaborative year-long effort aimed at getting everyone involved in the area, from the council, the government, the public and the private sector businesses within it, to engage with the key sustainability issues that affect it. Um, so high up on the agenda are affordable housing and sustainable travel, but a real key focus of this will be air pollution, which, if you're an ED reader, you'll know has really risen up the agenda recently. So thank you for joining me on this, Liz. Oh, thank you. Um, and for those who haven't heard of the campaign, would you mind giving us a brief introduction to what it is and what you're hoping to achieve with it? Yeah, sure. Um, it's an exciting new campaign, and uh, we've called it Everyone's Exeter. Um, it, it's a bold campaign, and, and what it's really doing is aiming to foster change within Exeter um, across all sectors of the city, so local authority, uh, businesses, schools, colleges, and also residents and individuals. Um, and it's focusing around key themes that affect everyone in the city, so including congestion, air pollution, affordable housing. Um, so it, it's going to focus um, on one goal each month for mm -hmm. a year, um, and each goal is related to one of the goals that Exeter City Futures has. So those are mainly around um, issues, urban issues that affect all cities. So how do we provide affordable housing? How do we make sure that we've got more renewable energy? How do we reduce our energy consumption? Um, and just generally, how do we make a city that, that is better to live in um, and, and a healthier happy place? Mm. And what are some of those key aims and how will they be measured? Like after that 12 months, if you look back, what is it that you'd look to, to see has happened over the past year? And measuring is, is a really key thing. And, and Exeter, like many other leading UK cities, has committed to an ambition to be a carbon neutral city by 2030. And, and actually, the measurement becomes really important, as is the definition of what is that. So we, we've set out for our city 12 clear goals that, that broadly cover energy, mobility, some sustainability goals around waste and, and air pollution, but also capability. So how do we build the skills for, for analytics and entrepreneurship? And we're now working under those 12 goals to define really clear targets. So if we're going to be carbon neutral by a certain date, what are the steps along the way with them and what can people get involved in? And, and setting that out then gives us the basis of which to, to then use data and analysis in order to start to measure the difference that we're making. And then I just wanted to ask as well, it looks like there's a lot of different stakeholders involved in this already. So the NHS Foundation Trust that's in the area, the Community Interest Company, the County Council, Exeter University and obviously yourself. So how, how did it get set up? How was that collaboration sort of got off the ground in the first instance? Yes, it's, it's taken a while. Um, it's a really exciting phase that we're entering now. So originally, um, it was Global City Futures, which is a, a consultancy that works to help local authorities um, drive change, and Exeter City Council. Um, and together, we've worked really over coming for the last two, two to three years now in order to start to engage across the city to talk to other leading organisations, to talk to um, schools and colleges, to talk to individuals and residents, and and really start to say what what is their vision for the future and actually goals that we've set out and um, that the 12 goals have come from that engagement process so they really reflect uh, the aspirations of the residents within the city they reflect the, the development priorities of most of those major organizations but those goals are so huge so that there is no way really that, that those kind of very complex ambitious 
God can be solved by a single organization. So mm-hmm. there was a, a need to bring together into a single governance entity, um, which is the community interest company, all of those organizations to formally work together to commit to make that change and to really act as um, that central convening point that can bring in then um, other businesses and residents so that people can start to participate and, and make the change and, and harness all of those energies to work in a, in a concerted and collaborative direction and towards the same goals. So it's been really exciting. It's been an incredible journey, actually, to, to bring those different organisations together. And we've got Exeter College, like you say, the University of Exeter, Devon County Council as the Transport Authority for the region. But to bring in the NHS Foundation Trust, I think, also really highlights the importance of some of these issues from a health and wellbeing perspective. Mm-hmm. They're not just urban planning problems. And I was, yeah. I was, I was going to ask about how the scheme would communicate like what the comms would look like for this, but it sounds like if the targets and the items that sit under them are designed for all these stakeholders and by all these stakeholders, that that would get rid of a lot of the challenges in the way. It Absolutely. Looks... Mm-hmm. And that, that's been the challenge in developing it, actually, is how do you provide something that, that is reflective of the perspectives of the people that deal with these kind of problems every day? So you know, we have done a lot of listening. We've done a lot of engagement. You know, what are the challenges that people are facing on a daily basis? You know, how are they moving around the city? Can they access the employment and the education that they want? Can they let their children cycle and, and feel that they can access open spaces and I think that's been so important and the Everyone's Exeter campaign is titled Everyone's Exeter precisely because we want to um, engage the community to make sure that the solutions that we come up with are right for the types of the challenges that, that people are dealing with and it's easy to assume that these kind of goals can only be dealt with by the local authority or by central government but actually what we believe is that every individual and every business has the opportunity to make a small change a small change towards those goals and the kind of city that they want to live in. And actually, if we bring together all of those small changes, we can make a massive impact on the difference that we try to make. And that's really the, the purpose of the campaign, is to encourage participations of individuals and businesses using pledges so that people can make a pledge and can share that pledge with their peers in order to say, I commit to making some change. I commit to helping to transform the city. I commit to, to addressing co- congestion and energy consumption just by making the small changes that are within my control. And actually, we believe that if we build that up, um, that energy together, I, I'm really hopeful that we can not only make an impact on our goals, but actually we, we can create a really nice vibrant and livable city. Mm-hmm. No, I got that. Even just from reading the press information, it seems like a really city pride focused initiative and one which is empowering all sorts of different groups to take action. Oh, it's action. a fantastic city and I think, you know, it is up, it is up with one of the most livable cities in, in the country and, you know, actually people want to come and live here and people want to locate their businesses here and, and that's part of the challenge and it's a challenge all cities are facing. You know, people are wanting to engage with their urban centres, they're, they're wanting to come there, to live there, to be educated there, to have jobs there and, and actually on one hand that's a brilliant thing but on the other hand, you know, that, that level of change, if, if not managed properly, could be incredibly um, divisive in terms of, of those that can take advantage of those opportunities and those who can't. And what we don't want are cities where we've got a growing social exclusion and, and people that are really affected by the, the level of, of influx of people or the level of uh, economic growth. So mm-hmm. we really wanted from day one to create an organisation that is, is working with and for and on behalf of the city of Exeter. So you know, we have got a very high-profile board. They, they make up the, the dominant public sector organisations and, and really the dominant employers, actually, in the region. Across that group, employer, a majority of the people that live in Exeter actually work for one of those organisations. But on top of that, we have a growing business partner network and we, we already have 80 businesses signed up to wanting to play their role. And it's something we learned, actually, as we were building the, the overall Exeter City Futures program as well as the campaign. It is people want to be part of making change. They want something that they can engage with to help them be part of 
delivering a positive impact on the city rather than having somebody swoop in over the top and mandating that actually it's going to be like this now. Um, so we really hope that will bring sustainable and lasting change to the city. Mm, and with with the growth challenges there that you've you've mentioned, that is a lot of the problems there and the benefits are being realised not just in Exeter but other cities and towns across the UK and across the world even. So do you think that the model of this programme is something that other urban areas could follow if the 12 months is successful? Oh, I would really hope so. And Exeter City Futures itself has set out its goals running to 2030. So this is just the first part of our campaign. And you know, it, the campaign is, is designed to bring people together in order to give them a way to make a commitment, to make a pledge, to, to start to make a change. And I think this kind of engagement model um, is replicable anywhere. It, it's not um, the only solution isn't for central government or the local authority to determine what the changes are. You know, if you give people the ability and the capability to think about the kind of future that they want, the kind of places that they want to live in, and, and you allow them to work through those challenges and, and be part of creating the solution, then generally you would hope that those solutions will then address the needs and the challenges that they face. And you know, that's really a key part of, of our goal um, over the next 12 months is to allow the city to listen and hear the perspectives on those different challenges from from different people. So, you know, how does uh, congested traffic affect the police force, for example? You know, how do they um, feel their business operates when the roads are congested? What about the mum who needs to take her kids to school and then get to work? How does the congestion affect her? And, and also, how does it affect something like a bus company or, or a logistics firm? And those are all different and valuable perspectives of people who are dealing with, on the face of it, the same problem. And, and the same goes for the energy challenges, the same goes for the waste challenges. And what we really want through the campaign over the next 12 months is, is not just to inspire people to make the pledges and to make their commitment and be part of creating the solution, but also to raise the awareness of, of how these challenges affect different people in different ways. And that all becomes such a fundamental part of creating the right solutions. Mm -hmm. Well, there you have it. If there's anyone listening in Exeter, it sounds like you're in for a pretty exciting year in sustainability. And for those who don't, I'm sure Liz has offered you some great advice on engaging and empowering stakeholders for sustainability there. So that's all we have time for with Liz today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. OK, great. And we'll be in touch to see how, how things progress over the next year. So you go, a very innovative uh, monthly focus that should be able to get uh, residents, organisations in Exeter really involved with that initiative without overbearing them, as you mentioned there, Sarah. So um, we'll certainly be looking out for the results for that uh, initiative as well. Right, so last but by no means least, uh, James, last episode um, was an interview for International Women's Day and I believe you're also discussing another thematic day for our our final interview for this episode. Yes, that's right, Matt. I spoke to uh, Andre Fury, who's the Global Director of Water Sustainability at AB InBev. Um, obviously today, as you mentioned previously, is World Water Day. Uh, so we had a discussion about the brewer's approach to water stewardship and why it's so important to them as a brewer and uh, and also the power of collaboration uh, and really why companies need to take this issue so seriously. That was kind of top lines. Okay, great stuff. Well, I think, yeah, it was... Um... This week that the Environment Agency basically said that England, of all places, is going to run out yeah. of water within 25 years. So um, definitely a timely uh, discussion to have. So um, to mark World Water Day, here is that interview with AB InBev's Global Director of Water Sustainability, Andre Furia, in full. Andre, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, could you just tell me a little bit more about uh, your activities for World Water Day? Water Day is a really important opportunity to focus and celebrate uh, water and the importance of water for the company and the places where we operate. But we often say for maybe in this, every day is World Water Day because uh, it's a critical issue for us uh, every day in our operations. Yeah. So that provides an opportunity for us to focus on our high-risk water and also for all our operations around the world to reach out to the local communities, to be in the local river. Uh, to bring uh, a local university or experts in to help us think and understand our water issues better. So it really mobilizes and energizes the, the business every year. 
Great. Um, so what is AB InBev's general approach to water stewardship? We think it's the long-term priority for the business to protect the resources uh, that are very important for us in growing uh, barley and growing um, hops and brewing good quality beer. So for us, our board has taken a decision uh, in terms of focusing on priority access to good quality uh, water uh, around all the operations where we uh, brew beer uh, in the world. So for us, it's very important to focus on availability and quality of water for our operations and also for those communities around our operations. I see. And um, I'm just wondering about the collaboration that you've done um, with the WWF and the Nature Conservancy. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, given that water stewardship is a long-term journey, um, there's no easy answer. Uh, it's very important for us to have quality local partners, and in each of those locations where we operate, we connect them locally. But it's also important to have global partners who can help us understand the problem challenges, help us design solutions, uh, mobilize finance, and better understand uh, the cost-effectiveness of different solutions. So both. Uh, the WWF and the Nature Conservancy. We are partnered with globally. They're very important for us in terms of uh, mobilizing uh, intellectual resources to better understand uh, the water risk to design solutions. And then, of course, the most important to implement uh, projects that actually have an impact. So they bring different skills uh, and resources uh, to the table. They have huge experience and a lot of credibility. And they're also critical partners. You know, sometimes uh, corporations would like mm. clear projects with defined uh, output, and sometimes local issues are a bit more complicated. And yeah. they bring very valuable uh, insights and sort of as a critical friend to make sure that we take a holistic solution into consideration. So not just the issues for our brewery, but also for the local community and the long-term uh, health of the environment. That sounds really interesting. Is there any specific examples um, that you can think of where where that kind of working with the local community has uh, has really been successful? Yes, we have a number of examples uh, in Africa, uh, in uh, North America, Latin America, Mexico. In a really good example is in Jaguarina, just outside Sao Paulo, mm. uh, in Brazil. We have a long-term relationship the Nature Conservancy, but also some of the other local actors. There's a real uh, concern that uh, change in land use over time and the impact of climate change has reduced the availability of water. So we're working uh, with some of the local partners, and the city of Jaguarina, the uh, National uh, Water Agency, as well as some technical partners, in terms of focus action, in terms of how we can better uh, ensure availability of water over time. So there's a very strong focus on issues such as soil restoration, working with farmers in terms of better agricultural practices, forest conservation, and then also reforesting uh, in, uh, at quite a large scale. So by those partners working together on the ground and impacting uh, on those uh, issues, we know that having a better uh, environment, so having uh, better plantation, etc., um, the water from rainfall is better captured, uh, better uh, restored to the underground uh, aquifer over time, we can already see positive impact in terms of measurements uh, on the quality uh, and the quantity of water in the area. Fantastic. And um... Kind of looking towards the future, uh, obviously, you know, you're kind of leading the agenda on this with, with a couple of other companies. What would you really like to see uh, at an industry-wide scale um, and maybe even at a global scale happen in terms of water and in terms of the issues around, obviously, scarcity and, and where we're going to be in the next 10 to 20 years? Um, what would you like to see happen at, yeah. at a government level and also, obviously, at a company kind of level? Yeah, I think there are a number of critical challenges uh, and also they present opportunities. Specifically, all of us to go beyond our individual projects 
which mm. actually collaborates uh, with our peers and even our competitors. Yeah. And we will say that, but not uh, all of us are equally good at uh, doing that. So I think really collaborating at scale uh, is essential. Secondly, to find more innovative and sustainable finances. Um, there's often quite a bit of uh, money around, but we don't seem to have the ability to package that in, uh, in, in a way that we can optimally use the different types of resources from different sectors. So for instance, companies often have short-term money available, where governments tend to have bigger resources uh, for watersheds, but that tends to be available over the longer term. And how we structure that uh, going forward is, uh, is important. Thirdly, we need to ensure that we have government as part of the solution. Uh, I see yeah. a number of really interesting water projects around the world. They don't always have the government as a partner, and that doesn't always uh, bode well for, uh, for long-term uh, impacts. And then finally, I think some really interesting opportunities to improve the measurement, because in the end, especially as corporations, we, we know these are complex ecological processes, but it's important to have tangible results uh, and, and measurement, and that's often a challenge. But we think there's some really interesting uh, technologies becoming available, global observation uh, systems using satellite uh, data, using drones to cheaply and effectively measure impact uh, yeah. of, of the work going forward. So we think that to be really exciting. Fantastic stuff. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Andre. So there you have it, a podcast that has given you a low-carbon housing solution if you need it, a social impact eBay for your purchasing needs if you need it, um, a healthy and thriving city to move to if you need it, um, and of course a nice sustainable beer for any house party that you might be thinking about throwing, um, again, if you need it. Um, in fact, if someone does actually end up doing all that, you know, purchasing a Z pod, moving to Exeter and whatnot, please do let us know because um, we'd love to hear from you, as, uh, as a long shot as that is. Uh, but we're actually just about out of time for this week's episode. Um, James and Sarah, thanks so much for, for rejoining me and joining me, I suppose. Um, it's been terribly lonely without the rest of you. Any plans <laughs> for the next week or so? <laughs> Uh, cracking on with the Mission Possible report and uh, some of the other things that we've got going on. Uh, I think that's probably the top of my agenda. And Sarah? Um, but so this weekend I'm actually off to Snowdonia to take in some natural beauty. Anyone listening probably thinks that I'm just off on long weekends yes, in, yeah. all the time. But I'm actually just trying to squeeze some annual leave in before May, which is obviously our busiest um, month of events with, among other things, Engage, Accelerate. Um, and DD Live, so just chilling out a bit before the mania starts around. Mm-hmm. So Sounds lovely. Well, for those uh, listening at home, just a reminder again that our podcast episodes, they're all available via the ED website. Um, just search Sustainable Business Covered. Uh, they can also be listened to and downloaded from both iTunes and now Spotify. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode, but for now, it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. A goodbye from James. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>